the delight and the joy that we each feel in our lives today to be able to come together, given that there are so many in the world with problems and difficulties, sometimes of great severity. And yet we have been blessed this morning with the opportunity and yet even the honor and privilege of approaching the throne of God, the powerful grace that in fact is Him, and to offer the worship and adoration to Him that so He so rightly and justly deserves. Didn't a chronicler say so long ago in First Chronicles 16, verse 29, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. In fact, the glory due unto God today helps us appreciate that as we study the Word of God that we might be encouraged, strengthened, edified, built up in the most holy faith. 2 Peter 1 verse 1. This morning, as we continue our series of studies dealing with the subject of the Holy Spirit, I would ask that you give some consideration to, in fact, this seventh installment in that series, looking at another aspect, another perspective on a discussion of this very timely and very powerful topic. So far as we have looked at the Holy Spirit, it's my hope that we have been able to learn much, to in fact be reminded of many things that are very sobering, very solemn, and also very majestic about the Holy Spirit. We learned that He is a divine person, very simply stated that it is not a proper thing to look upon the Holy Spirit as an influence, a force, a mere matter of emotion or energy. He is far, far more than that. He is a member of the Godhead. All the principles and characteristics of deity reside in Him. Furthermore, we came to see very quickly thereafter that He has a great work in both creation and in revelation. Primarily, as we look upon the Holy Scriptures, this is His product. He, in fact, superintended its production, and He makes it available to you and me, and how thankful eternally we ought to be for that marvelous gift. In the third place, we came to see the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as well as the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's special things that were vouchsafed in the character of the first century, but today we are the beneficiaries of what took place then, not as though those matters are directly accessible to you and me today. They had to do with miraculous matters. In the next lesson, we furthermore saw the spiritual gifts, plural, that again, miraculous matters did lead us to see the indwelling in our lives through the character of the word which he penned. In the next lesson that followed that one, did we not also see the Holy Spirit in the church as we looked at the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and the marvelous benefit in prayer that is mine and yours through the work of the Holy Spirit? Most recently that brought us to the lesson last Lord's Day morning. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in Matthew 12, we strove to see exactly what that was and we ended that lesson by looking at that very penetrating text in Hebrews 10, doing despite unto the Holy Spirit, that is to say insulting Him. Today, might I ask that we look as the bottom of that screen informs us, two things that may seem to be rather closely related. The restraint of the Holy Spirit on the one hand and the constraint of the Holy Spirit on the other. As we begin that discussion over the next few moments this morning, I strongly suspect that all of us have been in situations and circumstances in which the restraint of the Holy Spirit has been significantly misunderstood and quite likely dramatically misapplied. In fact, there are those who upon conversation seem to so readily say, the Spirit has directed me to do this, that, or the other. 
the Spirit has given me these words to say directly, personally, and absolutely. And as such, they claim the Spirit is in fact restraining them to do that which they otherwise would not do or to say that which they otherwise would not say. It would be my hope this morning that we can ask, what does the Scripture teach about the restraint of the Holy Spirit? And as we close that lesson, what does the Spirit teach about the constraint of the Holy Spirit? As we look upon that subject, might I quickly ask us to notice this is a Bible topic. For as we shall see, there are examples of those who did testify to being restrained by the Holy Spirit. Hence, we should ask the degree to which that took place, in what way did it take place, and does it take place in my life and in yours today? To ask all of those questions is perhaps to ask us to notice this. In Matthew 6, verse number 10, the Savior himself, as he made a teaching about the matter of prayer, he said, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can rest assured that the Holy Spirit does perfectly and absolutely the will of God, for He is God. And so if it was the Lord's prayer that things be accomplished here as fully and as completely as they are in heaven, we might well ask that you and I also would be as willing and as earnest in the accomplishment of God's will as the angels are in regard to His will in heaven. To do anything otherwise would to grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4 verse 30. Would it not be a tragedy to bring grief into the life, if you please, of the Holy Spirit? To bring Him sadness and a sense of anxiety because of my failure to do His will? And yet so much of the human family rebels against Him, has a disinterest in His Word. And might we thus ask in that line of study today about a few examples of individuals in the Bible where that kind of activity is in fact seen. Would you revisit with me the sixth chapter of Genesis? Early on in the sacred text, we read here about a time when the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6 verse number 5. As God looked upon the human family, he saw that there was a tremendous evil that was perpetrated in their life and that their thoughts wreaked upon that which was evil. As such, God was displeased. He was hurt. He was broken, if you please, in spirit. Which leads me to ask you to note verse number 3 of that chapter. This was the exact statement that Moses penned. My spirit shall not always strive with man. What does that think? phrase signify, my spirit, God speaking said, my spirit, having reference of course to the Holy Spirit, will not always strive, S-T-R-I-V-E. That word means to contend. It means to portray those that are in opposition one to another. There was something about the human family that was directly oppositional to the will of heaven and the spirit strove against man in an effort to set forth that which was godly. That text is rather strong, isn't it? My spirit shall not always strive with man. As we contemplate what that Holy Spirit endured and what the striving and the contention brought about, I would only ask you to notice that there's something interesting indeed about a New Testament commentary on that passage. If you'd like to hold your finger in the Genesis text, 
you might wish to look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. In that text, the inspired apostle, in writing things related to these events in Genesis, had this to say. Verse 18, 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also hath suffered once for his sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And might I ask you to notice the word Spirit ended verse 18. And verse 19 says, By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. If we may briefly notice that which Peter has affirmed, he said, the Spirit was the agency by which preaching was done in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing. Notice again the agent. Peter was a preacher of righteousness, Second Peter 2 verse 5. Could it thus be said that this text in Genesis 6, 3, where the Spirit would not strive with man forever, we notice that that restraint of the Holy Spirit was involved in the preaching of Noah. As he preached that which was righteous, he preached about the ungodliness and the iniquity and the sin in the lives of those antediluvians and that they needed to repent in order to avoid the, the terrible destiny of the flood. They chose not to do so. The inspired writer said eight souls were saved from that water. We notice the restraint of the Holy Spirit was housed within the proclamation of Noah's preaching. That's a significant idea, isn't it? But that's not the only example. Let's look at another in the Old Testament. As the restraint of the Holy Spirit is under discussion, let's turn our attention to Balaam and Balak in Numbers chapters 22 to 24. Somewhat later in the Old Testament, we also encounter this rather significant and interesting set of events. The children of Israel had left Egyptian bondage. They were journeying on their way toward that beautiful and marvelous land that flowed with milk and honey. And there came a time in that sojourning that they, in fact, met with the Moabites. The nation of Moab was such that Israel wished to, to simply pass through that land. But the Moabite king was uninterested in allowing that to happen. So much so that he was afraid of the Israelites. These people were vast in number. And so Balak, the Moabite king, solicited or strove to solicit the services of a prophet named Balaam. And his instructions to Balaam were, Curse these people for me. Balak was interested, you see, in garnering a cursing upon this people so that they would be no threat to the Moabites. However, as he sent and tried to bring Balaam to the place where he could curse them, Balaam at first refused to come. He very frankly said, I cannot unless God will grant me permission. Balaam, you see, went to God in prayer that night, and God in fact said, do not go with them. That people is blessed. They are my people and you must not curse them. However, as the emissaries from Balak came back and told that to him, Balak wasn't satisfied with that answer. He said, go back even more notable and offer him more gifts. 
and you offer him greater honor and you offer him more prestige. When these others, these princes from Moab came back, Balaam again would not go with them at first, but he said, I again need to ask God. Isn't it interesting? God had given his answer already. Balaam should have had no need to ask God again, but he did. This time, God, sensing that Balaam, in fact, desired to go, God granted him permission this time. But God again told him, You must speak only what I approve you to speak. No permission to speak anything else. It was on that occasion, in fact, we gained some sense of God's view toward this because even the donkey on which Balaam rode saw an angel standing before him and three times spoke, or rather three times, in fact, saved Balaam's life. Ultimately, this donkey spoke to Balaam. And on that occasion, we find the donkey was smarter than Balaam was. Isn't it a rather interesting thing in all that we are beginning to see the restraint of God? For notice in Numbers chapter 22, verses, I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 22, verses 18 and 20, we find something special that is said about the events in the life of Balaam. Numbers again, chapter 22, verses 18 and 20. We notice that the Spirit of God is what came upon Balaam. And when, in fact, Balak had given statement to curse, he, in fact, blessed. Isn't it interesting that here the restraint of the Holy Spirit had to do with the carrying out of God's will, the showering of blessing upon this people? That challenges us, I'm sure, to ponder. The restraint of the Holy Spirit seems to be described in ways very different than the way most people seem to think of it today. That someone, for instance, when they're about to say or do something, suddenly has this burst of feeling and they lay it on the Holy Spirit as though the Spirit changed their mind, gave them words to speak, and pointed them in a certain direction. That was not at all the way it happened in either Balaam's instance or in that earlier instance of Genesis chapter 6. I suppose each of us could, though, ask about the New Testament. As we ponder the nature of the New Testament, what does it say about this restraint? Might I direct you to the life of the Apostle Paul? In Acts chapter 16, we read an example of this restraint that might be a rather overwhelming example. In brevity, Acts chapter 16, verse number 6. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, forbidden of the Holy Ghost, here was an example Paul and his companions on this second missionary journey had desired, in fact, they had planned to move into the regions of Phrygia and Galatia. However, the text says that they were forbidden to do so by the Holy Spirit. In what way was that forbidding done? We obviously see the result of it. They did not at that moment go into those regions. They would wait for about another couple of years, according to a later chapter in Acts. That restraint, you see, was able to bring about God's will. At that moment, it was not the plan of the almighty, infinite God of heaven that the gospel go into those regions then. Perhaps there was some great hindering effect that would have brought the effect of the gospel to naught. Maybe there's something that you and I, not having the wisdom and foresight of God, would find it difficult to see. 
But perhaps the question might be, does the text tell us how that forbidding was done? I would submit that maybe a later verse answers that question. Would you look a chapter or two later as we specifically look at Acts 20 verse 23 and listen to Luke's reference to that event as well as to some other ways that Paul was restrained. In Acts 20 verse 23 the text says, Save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. It would appear that the Holy Spirit used prophets of that first century era. And as he employed prophets who in fact spoke to Paul about the, in fact, will of God, that directly tells us that again, this restraint didn't happen by this magical, ephemeral feeling that the Spirit just pops into somebody's head. It seemed to take place as a prophet delegated and appointed by God spoke to Paul and informed him of what the will of heaven was in order to be accomplished. That's an interesting conclusion, isn't it? Maybe one chapter later we see another reference to the same thing. In Acts 21, verse number 10, we read, And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And remember, Agabus also spoke to Paul and gave him instruction relative to something that, was to he, that he was to experience. I believe at this point in our lesson, we have seen that the restraint we've seen in the New Testament by the Holy Spirit involved either an apostle or involved a prophet. Now let me ask this question, as it would seem so reasonable to do. Today, we do not have apostles. According to Acts chapter 1, verse 22, there were qualifications that an apostle had to meet. This person had to be an eyewitness of the very life of our Lord. It stands to reason that there are no people on earth like that today. There's nobody 2,000 years old. No one could have been an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus and his teaching from the days of John the Baptist until his crucifixion. It simply could not be. But as we learned in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, about three Sundays ago, there are no prophets today either. For remember, Paul said, where there be prophecies, they shall fail. We can thus conclude and ask this question today. Is there then an instance where a person could claim a direct, personal, attributal influence of the Holy Spirit in the sense of explicit restraint? it would seem that we can't sustain such a viewpoint from the New Testament. We would not be able to see that kind of activity promised and vouchsafed to those that are members of the body of Christ. Now, could we ask this? As you and I are diligent servants of God, and we pray to Him with earnestness, and we ask for His leading influence in our life, can he, by his providence, work things out in such a way that the decisions we make would be in accordance to his will and would be the best for us and for his cause? Absolutely. In fact, that's the thing for which we pray, isn't it? But we must understand God is no respecter of persons. Romans 2 verse 11. Those kinds of ideas challenge us to notice this restraint of the Holy Spirit is a very different subject than what is many times considered in the lives of individuals today. Could it not be said that sometimes some seem to think that their emotions, their thoughts, their attitudes are all a direct result, they claim, of the Holy Spirit? 
when such is not taught in the New Testament in exactly that way. Maybe that leads us to ask about the constraint of the Holy Spirit, since it does relate to this restraint. Would you consider that with me too for the next few moments? What is meant by the constraint of the Holy Spirit? First of all, might we notice that the restraint had to do with not openly engaging in certain activities. The constraint is to pursue certain activities. It also is a Bible subject and one which I would ask you to consider with me. Notice that just as surely as the restraint is frequently misunderstood, so too it seems so with respect to the constraint as well. As we did before, let's begin in the Old Testament and look at some of the examples there of the constraint that occurred, and then we'll also look at some New Testament ones too. Let's revisit, if we might, a situation in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Turning back to that interesting saga of the Old Testament era, we find there that the prophet Samuel had just anointed Saul to be the first king of Israel. And in that anointing, we learn that there was a dramatic statement made by Samuel to Saul. In fact, as confirmation of that anointing, Saul was told, you will prophesy with a company of prophets which you will meet this day. Now, we might directly ask, prior to that moment, Saul wasn't prophesying. He was walking, in fact, from that occasion of meeting Samuel back to his home. But Samuel told him, when you meet that company of prophets that will be leaving the city, you will begin to prophesy with them. Now let us ask, this overwhelming capability of prophesying engulfed Saul and he began to prophesy just as Samuel had foretold he would. Notice though the language says that it was by the Spirit. The Spirit enabled him to do that. It was by the Spirit that that capability came upon him. There's an Old Testament example, isn't it, of this constraint of the Holy Spirit enabled him to do this matter of prophesying, this special capability that was a dramatic act of service to God. But that's only one example. Might we notice another one in Second Chronicles 15, beginning in verse 1. On this occasion, there was a king whose name was Asa, and Asa had a heart that could be bent toward the following of God. It is true that prior to that time he hadn't always served the Lord the way he should, but at least he had a tender heart. The Spirit came upon the prophet Azariah, and when he came before Asa, he prophesied in sternness and directness about the evil that would come upon him and his people if they did not proceed to follow the Lord. Asa changed his ways, he proceeded to bring Judah to a time of closer service to God. But might we notice the Spirit came upon Azariah and prompted him with language by which he preached to Asa. There was an example where the constraint involved the actual language of preaching. We should be very quick to say that does not give any preacher today the license to say, the Spirit has come upon me and given me the words I need to say, regardless whether they're in this book or not. Friend, that's an absolute lie. Any preacher who would have the audacity to say such is not worthy of being called a preacher. God today, as we've already learned, does not restrain individuals in that fashion, in that way. 
we are those that must be students of the Word, and only by virtue of that fact can we rightly divide it, and can we, of course, share it with others in the proper and acceptable way. This restraint by which that prophet Azariah was constrained to speak to Asa is no pattern for today at all. Maybe a New Testament example will drive home that point. Might I ask you to consider with me the scene of Acts chapter 15, repeated again in Acts chapter 18. In Acts chapter 15, verse number 28, we read this passage. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. The circumstances or the context of that discussion was this. There was a significant question about whether or not Gentiles needed to be circumcised. There was a significant question about how they became Christians. There was a conference convened in Jerusalem. And at that conference, the Apostle Paul appeared. As he gave discussion about what had happened at the household of Cornelius, as he gave information about the things that took place then, that led to this text that you and I just read. I would ask that you notice it with me again as we read it. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us not to lay or to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Isn't it significant then that what was laid upon the people was simply that which is now recorded for us in the New Testament? What was laid upon the people by the mouth of those apostles and by the conference convened in Jerusalem was the very words recorded and it was the will of God for them. The significance of that is seen in then that those things that were laid upon them are the very things that they were to abide by. And they're listed for us in the next verse. That ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. The Holy Ghost's constraining of that conference and what was set forth from it is exactly New Testament text. Notice, if you would, in Acts 18.5, the final example of our discussion this morning. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Pressed in the Spirit. There are some who read into that that the Spirit was working through Paul in a rather unusual and direct fashion. But the American Standard renders that in a way that's closer to the Greek. And the rendering of it is simply this. He was constrained by the Word. He was constrained by the Word. The Holy Spirit constrains today by virtue of this which He has written. When you and I thus so live our life that we do not engage in fornication, well, we are being constrained, but it's we're constrained by the Word. He is not acting upon me in any different way than He would act on you. He has informed, He has instructed, and He has restrained by the virtue of that which is taught in the Holy Scriptures. When you and I thus live by not doing certain things and doing certain others in which the Scriptures are the guide, that is the testimony of the way in which the Spirit restrains in regard to what we do not do, and He constrains in regard to that which we do do. 
the firmness then of being constrained by the word is exemplified in the very life of Paul. And in regard to these aspects of prophecies and others, those were first century eras. That livelihood of the church is a matter now of history, isn't it? The Spirit doesn't act in ways like that any longer. There are no prophets today, as we read of in 1 Corinthians 12. There are not those like David who stated in 2 Samuel 23 too, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. God doesn't put words in my tongue today any differently than He puts them in this book. That's the manner in which we're constrained, and that's the manner that we pursue His will today. That constraint of the Spirit leads us to conclude this lesson by making a few closing thoughts and a few closing points. I've listed them at the bottom of that screen for your consideration. God calls each and every human being through the character of the gospel. We read that, do we not, in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 14. And our Savior with a nail-scarred hat pointed to a world lost in sin and said, Go and preach to every creature. Mark 16 verse 15. Notice that he didn't say the Spirit was going to supernaturally prompt some to answer and some to not. He told those apostles, you go and you preach. Luke's version in Luke 24 beginning, beginning in verse 46 reads, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached Notice, he said, preached among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Preaching is done by those who proclaim the Word of God. Not as though, again, God supernaturally gives them what to say. They are charged to study. They are charged to prepare themselves. May each of us then, as we strive to teach and speak in class arrangements or from the pulpit, or even in a personal way to our neighbors and friends, we should understand that when we speak with the Word, that is what's constraining us. That's what's leading us to say the plan of salvation or the means of worship or the other things that are therein expressed. In Romans 6, verse number 17, we notice that the service that God expects thus is a service that's obedient to that gospel. But God be thanked, Paul said, that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Notice it was the doctrine that had been delivered, not a supernatural presentation of any other thing, but the revelation of God's doctrine. Today, the Spirit is in fact desiring to restrain you from a life of sin. The Spirit wants you to turn your life over to a complete obedience to God by virtue of following the precepts of this book. We cannot overstate the significance and importance of the Holy Scriptures. It is the, indeed the means of, that leads us to the pathway of life everlasting. Notice though, if you're not a Christian today, to this point you haven't submitted your life in restraint to what God has revealed, and you're not constrained by the Word either. You need to quickly let that, be, let that come to pass in your life. If we could aid you today... We're going to stand in just a moment and sing a hymn of encouragement. Let your life become one that's constrained to follow the teachings of the Scriptures. That means you need to become a Christian if you have not done so. You need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
Furthermore, you need to repent of your sins. In that repentance, you make a decision to turn away from them, to commit them no more, to not pursue and follow them. Notice that must be, though, succeeded by a confession that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. Upon that confession, you then can be buried in water, baptized for the remission of sins, and at that point, the Lord adds you to His church. You are then a saved individual, one who can then, with all the precepts of your heart, be constrained by the proclamations of truth and live in open obedience to the nature of the blood of Jesus, Hebrews 9.14. If you have done that in life, but you no longer are faithful, you no longer are constrained by the Spirit, you have long since come to be constrained by the devil. You follow his way, you let him guide and direct you, Maybe you haven't thought of it that way, but Jesus said, He that is not with me is against me. Matthew 12, verse 30. We can't straddle the fence. We're either in the camp of the Lord or we're in the camp of the devil. Today, if you find yourself in the devil's camp, thankfully you can exit that camp. There is a door out of it. You can come over and become a part of the Lord's body again faithful and true to the Master who bought you, faithful and true to the church which He purchased. If we today could be of assistance in praying on your behalf, don't hesitate, don't procrastinate, don't delay. Let it be known, and we'd be happy to pray for you even now. While together we stand and while we sing.